we are typically buying or, or acquiring businesses which might have from two to three to 100 employees or so. And if there is a big rewrite looming in the future, it will eat up the energy of the whole organization. Then the developers will be tied with the rewrite. Uh, they are not able to do the new features that the clients, uh, end users, customers request. Uh, they, they are not able to uh, create something that delights the customers and big rewrites might take two years and then you lose market position. So, so it's re really important to manage the depth and understand the amount of it. Hello and welcome to DevOps Sauna. Financial due diligence is a de facto assessment carried out when purchasing or investing into any software company. But what about the technical due diligence? We at Efficode have seen multiple cases where business critical solutions have been in such a state that the most suitable way forward is to start over. Imagine that this application was part of the acquisition that your company was considering. And imagine that rebuilding would be such a big expensive effort that the business income is not able to cover the required additional investment in any reasonable time. This is why technical or technology due diligence exists. We invited Santu Elsinen, Chief Digital Officer at Alma Media, and Juha Ramala, an Agile coach and a project manager at Efficode. We discuss with Santu and Juha about the reasons to doing a technical due diligence, how does the process look like, and spice the theory up with their experience from the field. So, Santu and Juha, welcome to the DevOps Sauna podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to have you here. And um, this is a topic that I, I need to start by admitting that I know very little. Um, I have been part of the acquisitions as part of the Efficode's executive team, but I have not um, had an opportunity to participate in a technology due diligence, more, more into the business due diligence side. And that's a, that's a topic of today. So we are going to talk about technology due diligence and uh, why should somebody do it and how, how it's done and, and we'll take it from there. So let's start by just uh, putting a definition into the technology due diligence audit and give the uh, floor to Juha to basically introduce the concept and uh, what does it mean. Okay, thank you. Um, well, companies invest in other companies and their software. Uh, the due diligence process ensures that everybody knows what is being purchased and uh, the technology due diligence audit concentrates on the software. Uh, the development team, um, the process being used, and the overall quality of the software. Um, and as you know, uh, not everything is visible to the surface. If you think for, think, for example, a web UI of some application or, or solution, you really can't see beyond the sur surface, uh, whether there is something good or bad beyond the surface. Uh, but with technology due diligence audit, uh, it helps you to find the possible development items and as well as the good, the valuable parts of the software. Um, in time, the software gets outdated uh, or it has been originally written in poor quality or some shortcuts have been taken during the development. The, the technology due diligence audit, audit gives you a ballpark of investment that is required to get it back on track. 
uh, what you get is a technical debt analysis and, and recommendations how to fix it. So is it fair to say that this is relevant for um, the the kind of um, acquisitions and, uh, and sort of considerations of acquisitions when you are buying software? But if you are buying, let's say, consulting business, then it would be less of an issue. Well, I, I, I guess it falls a bit to the semantics. So, so some people talk about IT DDs and, and some people talk about technology DDs and these probably get mixed in conversation. Generally, I would say that uh, you need to look into the IT part, obviously. So, so are there adequate licenses? What kind of systems does the company use, etc.? This applies to basically every company. Everybody uses technology nowadays. Uh, you look into their agreements with their vendors, etc. But then technology due diligence is important uh, when you are acquiring uh, software or when you are acquiring teams that produce so software, whether they have done it already or are planning to do that in, in the future. So I would make that kind of a distinction. And you then again, where yeah, saying. so if, if consult consulting business is using some particular tools, then of course it might be interesting also to look at those uh, if they have, for example, be built them earlier phase and then they are using those ones as tools in their consulting business, of course, then we can apply the technology to the uh, technology audit also to those, as Sun said. Right, okay, so it doesn't have to be source code so long as there is technology involved that is part of the package, so to say. Well, source yeah. code is, is easy to start with, so that you kind of look at the code and what's, what's, what's there. But of course, we can look at the processes and, and how how they are working as a team and, and how, how they use those tools in, in, yeah, but in their work. Ob obviously, I would say that it's fairly important to look into the code as well, because the code doesn't lie. It doesn't give a false picture of itself, of course you need to understand what's behind certain uh, design decisions that have been made with that, but uh, uh, it doesn't rely on uh, personal opinions. You, you use automated tools to analyze it and, and then, of course, expert opinions. And it, I think it gives a fairly truthful picture of the situation. So when you are sort of thinking why and when you should do technology due diligence audit, um, there is naturally this, let me put it this way, uh, if you were to say this is why and when you should do it, but also this is why and when it is probably not necessary, what, what do you think? No, no, well, first and foremost, uh, one needs to understand what you are acquiring. If you are acquiring a software company or a company where the software plays a significant part of the business, you need to understand what, uh, what you are getting. I, I mean, if you were to buy factories, you would look into the quality of those factories, the processes there, etc. So, so the same applies for software. Uh, the quality of the product is uh, important, but perhaps even more important is, uh, is the uh, understanding of the capabilities of the people behind the software. So whether they work uh, f together well as a team, uh, how they are able to perform and deliver codes, uh, code updates, etc. Et so so I, I think the uh, understanding of the cohesion of the teams and the ways of working are, are really important. You are basically often 
buying also people and that if you're buying a startup that is pretty much the only thing that you are buying so so it's important to understand what the people are capable to do uh, and just like you have said earlier i think it's the traditional way of uh, of looking into these things has perhaps been uh, having a few interviews looking into the interface checking a few architectural diagrams etc but you don't uh, tend to get a deep insight into the product by just looking into those matters. So, so you actually need to go, go to the code, look at the development, DevOps pipelines, CI, CD things, and uh, how the people are actually actually working. So that's, that's really important. So I would say that uh, you, would, you should consider doing a technology due diligence when you, when you are acquiring a company that has software products or does software development. It might not have products yet, but it, uh, it, it has such an intention. And I, I would think that it's important whether the software is developed internally or, or by, a, 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 by an external partner. So, so, so if it's a combination where, where you have a one or two or, or a multitude of different partners, you, you would need to audit those, those companies in order to understand what you are getting. And uh, I would say that this should be done always, regardless of the company size. So uh, we, our, our company, we do around from five to 10 acquisitions per year. And uh, typically some of these acquisitions are fairly small. They might be two, three, four person companies, but it's still very important, perhaps even more important because the end product resides on the capabilities of one or two persons. So it's, it's very important to understand what they have developed over the years. The good thing is obviously that if you are acquiring something small, the process is fairly straightforward. Then again, if you are buying an ERP that has been developed for 20 years, the analysis is a bit more complicated. Yeah, I can imagine, especially in the smaller companies, they, they probably have, they might have, might have preferred the time to market, which means that a lot of documentation and a lot of information in general are not explicated anywhere but they are more in the people's minds yeah that is that is the thing and typically things like disaster recovery for example it resides on the capabilities of one single person so so you need to understand that what actually will happen if something goes wrong and the services cease to exist how do you how do you fix those especially if the one person is not available at the later stage anymore so. yeah you both have experience from technology due diligence but i understand that your point of view is rather different so santo you have been on on that side of the table where you are considering to acquire a company yes. and then you're performing a technology due diligence to to make an informed decision whereas you know, i understand that maybe i don't have the full picture of of your history but you are more in the other side of the table where you are providing services for the companies that the, the kind of companies that santo represents um but yeah yeah tr true so so uh well, over the years during my career, I think I have been participating in 40 or 50 different MTA processes. So I've been also doing other things besides just uh, technology DDs. Uh, but uh, nowadays, uh, I am mostly the kind of a person who acquires services for the DD purposes and, and manages the whole process. And of course, th then thinks of the issues like agreements and valuations and, uh, and, uh, and such. But yeah, I, I have been buying and selling over the past 25 years, so 
So now technology due diligence sounds like a black box for an uneducated or uninformed like me. So, so maybe it is worthwhile to just open the box and look what's inside and look at how does one do an audit. So if I turn the table and uh, give floor to, to you how to give like a breakdown of what is what is included in that audit? Well, first of all, um, what we produce there is we create a report that what is the status of the software that is being audited. But before that, uh, first we start with kickoffs. Uh, the first kickoff we do is most often with the, the customer who is ordering the, the audit. Uh, in that meeting, um, it's probably one or two hours. Um, it's been summoned quite rapidly because normally due diligence processes are quite quick and they and the, the technology part is something that is done very often a bit on the late pace of, of that process anyhow. So we, we have a quite tight schedule. Um, but anyhow, uh, we start with a kickoff with the customer uh, where we set the target. Um, we also manage a bit of the expectations so that we need to know why the audit is needed. Uh, what's the reason behind, of course, the company is investing into another company, but we need to know a bit more. So we need to know whether you have whether the customer has any known concerns about software or do they want to know the value of some part of that so that we, we can go a bit deeper into the software and see whether there's real value in, in things. Um, in that kickoff, we also need to discuss a bit about um, the, the security and, and, for example, the the inside information policies. Um, is it something that might apply uh, restrictions to our auditors so that they can't really go to the stock market <laughs> for the next six months because of that audit? Um, but that's something that we agree in that kickoff. Um, and then we, we also agree that the schedule. Um, normally the, the audit takes around two calendar weeks, uh, starting from the point where we where we get the access to the, the source code. Uh, and then we also agree with the uh, customer that um, what kind of meetings we have before our report is done. Do we need to have some intermediate checkups? Uh, if, if they are in, in rush, we might, might like want to discuss a bit things pretty early in the face of the, uh, of the audit. Um, once we have understood what the customer wants, then uh, we connect to the target target team. Um, with the customer, we have already set up the stage, so we know that is the is the is the target friendly or hostile, meaning that how much how much they know. Uh, do they know that they've been audited for an investment or thing or not, and how well they have been communicated about the details of, of the audit. Um, then when in, in the kickoff with the target, uh, we um, of course we need to know that where we are coming from and we, we describe that why we are there. We might have agreed with the customer that there is a backup uh, background story why we are doing the audit and then we um, discuss about things on a delicate manner so that if the target is not um, supposed to know all the things we are not telling those things to them. Um, we create a circle of information with the uh, target so that we 
for example, very often the CTO of the company is the spokesman for for the for the kickoff, and with him or her we um, create this kind of circle of information that who knows what and who can we connect directly and who do we need to connect through the CTO, for example, or the con contact person. Um, if the target requires NDAs with Efficode, of course we will set up those. And very often if we are talking about the inside information cases, we need to create personal NDAs with, with everybody there so that the, the data is not distributed to the wrong places. Uh, in the target kickoff, the target normally introduces the product and gives a demo of the application. They run through their processes, they run through their source code and they introduce the team. And from that meeting onwards, uh, we really need to establish trust with with the target and of course with the customer from the kickoff, customer kickoff. But it's really important that the target is is uh, is not skeptical with with Efficode. We are not going to steal their software. We are just auditing it and giving also them valuable information about the application and software. Um, during the kickoff, other things that are important is that of course we need to get access to the source code. Uh, we either get it through the version control directly. Um, sometimes we need to set up VPNs. We need to create secure data rooms in order to share the code or the data or the documentation. Uh, sometimes it's even required by the target that they set up this kind of virtual isolated uh, environment where their software is and they are logging all the work that we are doing in there. But of course for us the easiest way is that we create the trust and we can get access directly to through their version control and use that for, for, for the source code. Also, we get access normally to the ticketing system, ticketing system to the pipelines of, of DevOps and, and also other documentation is really important to get our hands on. Uh, in that uh, target kickoff, we start setting up the interviews with the key personnel or agreeing how to do it later phase onwards. Um, and then of course we can agree on this kind of separate communication channels. Sometimes we can use Slack in, in order to get or some other other chat uh, platform to discuss with the team or if we have any questions regarding the code. This is the like the the best possible case that we can we can uh, ask questions from the target team anytime and, and get verification that to things that we have found. Um, once we get the source code, um, it's, it's, we are we do an expert review on the code base, meaning that uh, there will be one to three develop, developers, architects, UX experts looking at the code or the actual application, and they they review it, see how it's been built, they check the architecture and so on, all the details. Um, and then we run static analysis tools on the software so that we get the standardized metrics of, of the overall quality of the so software uh, which are then shared to the target and to the customer so that they can see what we have found f through the tools. And if the customer has requested some deep dives into business critical items then, then we look at those in more details and trying to find the real value behind perhaps the promise that the target has given. Uh, once we have started the code analysis, we know a bit more about the code and we know a bit about the developers 
then we decide that who do we want to interview. Normally we interview the CTO for example who is like the lead who should know the most of, of the application on a high level. Uh, then we go deeper architect who has designed the application is really interesting person to talk to and then developers for, who have created most commits into the application. Those, those are really interesting people to kind of get the understanding of the application and what's good and what's bad in, in the application. And it's surprisingly easy to get kind of answers from the developers that what is what is good, what, what they are proud of and what they would uh, really want to improve in the application. They, they give answers if you ask. Sometimes, sometimes they give answers if if you don't ask. <laughs> that's the that's a nice case. You you get lots of information from the from the interviews. We also interviews very often like customer service people, support team members, or testing people, just to get kind of really good overall look on on the application. And then in the end, as I said, we create an audit report where we concentrate on the tools being used, the environment, um, the application architecture, scalability, quality, security uh, issues. Uh, we look at the sustainability and, and after that we also given, um, give a analysis, analysis of the technical capital and technical debt, uh, how much there's value and how much there is debt, uh, debt there. Um, and uh, also because people are important and the processes are important once we have kind of figured out what's the software then we start asking questions about processes and the team and we try to analyze and find any for example personal personal risks so that are there any bottlenecks or really that that important people in the team that once they take their finger out of glass of water there's a hole there <laughs> and and try to find those those people um, um, after we have created the report uh, we send that to the target uh, to be commented and also they can um, they can uh, point out things that we have we may have misunderstood because we don't have the whole picture we are looking at the code we are doing interviews so we may have something that we didn't understand and then they have the opportunity to fix those issues. Of course we kind of keep our veto right on things that we find so that the target um, can't really explain them out of uh, bad habits if they do have those. Um, once we have kind of gotten the confirmation from the target that the report is okay or they have been able to comment it, uh, then we share the report to the customer and there uh, we will then discuss the findings and the recommendations with the customer and, and go a bit deeper into the findings that we've found. And um, after that the, the customer should be much more wiser regarding the software and the team processes and the value of the software. Thank you for that. Uh, well, maybe at this point, uh, Santo is thinking, okay, th that's how it looks like in paper for somebody who's providing those services. And then there's this experience that whoever is uh, is buying that 
analysis what that experience looks like and we'll go back go go into that very very soon but i want to make one observation and, and probably hear from you um i have been under the impression that when you when you do acquisitions then there is inevitably some sort of information asymmetry between the company who is being acquired and then the company who is acquiring it so like and, and that's that's part of the deal making that not both parties know every, everything. But when you come to the... And I was listening to your kickoff code analysis and interviews, and I was very much following that line of thinking that, okay, the, the buyer is gathering information and making conclusions that bring them an advantage in that conversation based on all the other information that they have available. But then you come to the last part, which is the audit report. And that's where it all... I changed my like I I didn't know what to think of it anymore because you basically said you are playing back the report to the target company. So essentially the the organization who was audited has the same information than than the company who ordered auditing. Yes and um we have to be open regarding the things because um uh, of course, whatever we find um, and what, whatever are the recommendations, they are really valuable for that team anyhow. And regardless whether they get the investment or not, it's something that they should look at. If we, if, if we find something that we recommend to fix, then they should should look at that one. So, and for 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 just getting things right, it's it's in my mind, it's really important that we kind of let the target company comment on the things that we find because it's it's not if we have understood something wrong we haven't found found something it's also um it's it's possible to happen we can't really know everything so it's also in a way valuable for the customer so that we get things right so that we don't say anything that uh, is obviously wrong of course we as i said we keep the veto right because we might know better, we might have seen something that can't be explained and those those ones will be in the report. So they can't really hide, the, the target can't hide those things that are, have been found in, in the audit. And perhaps to continue from there, I, I would think that there are kind of two sides to the coin. So obviously the technical findings itself say, saying that uh, you have a flaw here or, or, or there is a security problem with that kind of implementation those you need to share with the target the other side of the coin is obviously the financial implications of such findings which then belong to the company uh, doing or, or, or having purchased the diligence from from somebody because that is something that you require for negotiations and and from there you can even though i don't see this as a kind of a process where you want to create a negotiation advantage this is a more of an understanding process but still that that kind of information obviously only only belongs to the company in, in intending to do the acquisition mm. and that can be then used in negotiation hi again Santu and Juha discuss about the software teams and relate to DevOps. Our teams at Efficode have written a hugely popular guide, DevOps for Executives. I am adding a link to the show notes and I encourage you to read it at your leisure. Also, there are a few more links to the related podcast about technical agile coaching and technical due diligence. Take a look. Now, let's get back to the discussion. 
when we are sharing the report with the target, we go through the technical details and then kind of try to get confirmation to the things that we have found and kind of reasons why they have chosen to do something in, in a certain way. And once we go through the uh, report with the um, customer who ordered the audit, uh, we go a bit beyond that and kind of also discuss um, feelings that how do how did we felt about the team and how how do they work together and is there something that we kind of may see um, questionable and then also bring our doubts um, into the discussion when we are talking to the customer so it's it's kind of uh, we want to get the things and the facts right with the target by reviewing the audit report with them um, and when we are talking to the customer uh, we kind of go a bit further and think about and talk about the um, the bigger picture the overall picture of the application the software team and how do we see the the overall development process and, and team how they work together so santo if, if you listen to all that and think it think it uh, from your experience perspective what would you what would you highlight from from your experiences from doing tech due diligences yeah i i think that there, there are a few few perhaps not so surprising points but i'll nevertheless share them so so very seldomly you encounter an, a target which you want to acquire where there is nothing to fix so when you when doing software obviously you can almost always do something better so, so, so uh, you will find issues, and and then you need to understand the implications of those issues. Are they big? Have they a, a large financial impact, or is it mostly insignificant impact? And uh, unfortunately, especially when acquiring, uh, let's say, companies with a bit of a longer history, you you come across major issues because. But when you have coded something for 10 or 20 years, it's very rare that everything is modern, done with modern technologies and tools, uses uh, cloud to a full extent, etc. And, and there is a, a amicable and excellent dev, dev culture and efficient team. So, so there are always issues, but and, and you need to understand that you will face these. Uh, when you find an, uh, a project or a target where there are no ma major issues, it's always, always a source of great delight, at, at least for my colleagues who, who are running the technology leadership function, then there is one, one uh, less problem uh, on, on your table in the future. But th this also happens. And, uh, and, and like, like I said, I've been once on a sell side where, where uh, there was an audit done and the reviewer wrote that the this code is really elegant. I couldn't have written it better myself, which was a rare price for, <laughs> price from from such such a project. Uh, the other thing being that uh, uh, M&A processes, our acquisitions, investments, they are typically uh, uh, big processes. There is a lot of people involved, uh, both from the target side, uh, their advisors, their, their lawyers, uh, their auditors, investment bankers, what have you. And the same, for, same, for, same from your side. So there is easily 20, 30, 40 people that you need to keep on par what is happening. Because what you find in technical DD will or might have an uh, on effect on, on, on legal issues. Uh, you need to renegotiate it 
some parts of the share purchase agreements, uh, you need to look into the reps and warranties part of su such papers. So, so, so if you find, for example, a security hold, then the seller must must give you uh, uh, some guarantees that uh, that uh, if there is a data breach, it's not entirely up to you to cover the costs from such breach, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you need to really engage. Uh, a lot in a communication between different parties and, and unfortunately people doing technical DDs they always don't tend to share the same capabilities as let's say lawyers or, or, or auditors from a big five company. So you need to also translate the messages between the different parties and highlight that is this really important or, or not. There are lawyers who are experts also on technical matters, and it's it's good to have have one on one or two or even three on the board in in these cases. But but sometimes it's not in their expertise to understand the implications of let let's say copyleft licenses on the on the future of uh, software development, and this is a big uh, issue, IPR issue, obviously. So so a lot of communication. Yeah. Uh, the third part, uh, you already covered this a bit, so, so what is valuable in this kind of audit is that typically the target also receives something that's valuable for them. They receive a list of issues that they probably would need to look into, if not instantly, in the next few years. Uh, I have been in part in multiple projects where they have, uh, where big security issues have been found, and obviously then they have been fixed uh, in a very fast manner. And this is important for the target's business continuity and their risk position, whether the acquisition happens or not. So, so whereas you might say that, uh, an, let's say, financial audit necessarily doesn't provide that much additional value to the target, I would say that the technical audit typically does. So, so that is that is a good thing when uh, when discussing the uh, MTA process with the target that we would like to do this, and it will also be beneficial for you whether the deal happens or not. Yeah, we we related to this topic earlier, which was that in the in this like companies that hasn't existed such a long time they probably have focused on getting their features right and then by by way of that they have <coughs> accrued some technical debt and uh, we have discussed about technical debt earlier in the podcast and basically one way of describing technical debt is that it, it's something that you think you would be doing next when you leave behind whatever you were doing it's like okay I'm, I'm gonna fix it but i'm not going to have i don't have time to do it now and that's what you leave behind is the technical debt why does it matter especially now in this tech dd context why is technical debt such a an important thing i would describe it in this kind of practical manner so if you are buying a house or an apartment you really want to know how much there is to repair how well the house has been built uh, is the plumbing still plumbing still okay? Um, any any issues with water isolation in the bathroom, because you were doing it in hurry. Um, the same applies to the to the software. Um, you need to look at the architecture and 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 other other libraries. Are they are they up to date? Uh, conventions. What the, what the team is using? How is the documentation? And, and as you said, how many shortcuts have been taken during the process? So um, uh, it's it's really easy to kind of say that. Well, I'll do that tomorrow. I will write this again. I will refactor this code 
next week and then you forgot or you don't have the time and you have to prioritize something uh, over, over that refactoring where you would actually mend the things that you did too quickly and hasty. The feature will work, you get the money, money, <laughs> money with that feature, but it might be really badly written and that's kind of causing the technical debt. And um, when you have a lot of technical debt in the, in the software, in the in the in the application, it's it's really difficult to kind of scale the application. It doesn't really scale if you have problems with 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 code, and uh, even continuing uh, with with the current code base, it might be difficult to continue with the code base. And and definitely, if you have done the worst possible thing, and and did a lot of copy pasting in the software so that you have the same code in many projects and then they should be in one place, in one common place. Uh, then you have this kind of really bad situation where continuation from there is going to be hard. And you, what you get out of the uh, technical debt is that more debt you has to have, the less the, the software is worth. And uh, the more difficult it is to continue building on that, on that software with debt and all these things they they go hand, hand in hand with the costs that you will face in the future of that application and developing that further and what you need to know is technical debt is anyway anyway there it's today there and you will create technical debt, debt basically every time you touch the code uh, but you have to manage the debt so that you know when you are creating it and you have to know and and write down the way how you fix it and once you have have done that it's okay actually to have it if you know how to fix it and you have a plan and you know when you are going to fix it yeah what about you santo yeah i i mean you have you have put it well and obviously technical debt is like any other debt uh the bad thing about de technical debt is that it cannot be wiped away by interest rate changes by the european central bank it will always be there there is no inflation so so eventually it needs to be paid or then you will be bankrupt if you cannot face the amount of debt so uh, it is also important to think that uh, if you typically, obviously, when doing an investment, you look into the, let's say, uh, cash flows from the next five or ten years and uh, hopefully the company shows some kind of a profit or at least is a, uh, on a growth trajectory so, 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 that, so that you are acquiring something worth for a while. But let's say for, for the sake of convenience, an easy example that, that you, you think that the company is going to make 100,000 of profit each year from the next uh, ten years. Obviously, profits should be rising, but just for the sake of convenience, a very easy calculation. If then at the year, during year 10, you need to do a 1 million euro investment in order to get rid of the debt because the software has become unmanageable, uh, or the amount of uh, or the time, time uh, of the personnel is totally used with the, with, with the uh, managing the software, the maintenance of it. They are not able to develop new features, etc., etc. And you need to pay this uh, 1 million uh, euros in, in 10 years, it has a very significant impact on what you should be willing to pay for, for such a thing, because obviously, or generally, you, you tend to buy something that, uh, that, that goes on at infinitum, you're not paying, buying something that it exists only for two or three years. 
So, so uh, it might, might have a huge impact on valuation. Some, sometimes the analysis shows that you actually, it makes no sense to invest in it or, or, or the price is so low that the target is then not, not willing to engage in the discussion any, anymore. And on the other hand, again, continuing from Juha's thought is that uh, it is important to have the process of managing the technical debt. So, so it is perhaps worthwhile to do small scale, medium scale improvement over the years than to let the debt accumulate over 10, 10 or 15 years. And then you are at a situation where you, where you need to start everything from scratch, recode everything or refactor everything. And at least in our case, we are typically buying or, or acquiring businesses which might have from two to three to 100 employees or so. And if there is a big rewrite looming in the future, it will eat up the energy of the whole organization. Then the developers will be tied with the rewrite. Uh, they are not able to do the new features that the clients, uh, end users, customers request. Uh, they, they are not able to uh, create something that delights the customers and big rewrites might take two years and then you lose market position. So, so it's re really important to manage the depth and understand the amount of it. Obviously, at some stage, it, uh, it makes sense perhaps to accumulate the debt. It's not always uh, wise to, to uh, keep the debt at, at the minimum level, but, but you should understand the implications of, of such decisions. Yeah, and maybe there are very different kind of technical debts. Like if, if the problem is about, let's say, availability and scalability, then, then it's a quite a different kind of an animal than let's say that your user interface library or the user UI framework is, is basically going extinct and there's not going to be a support for that and you have to migrate to a completely new UI framework and of course the, the first one can be scaled or sold in a very different and maybe more affordable way than refactoring the entire um, user experience for your end users. But that's, uh, let, let me put it the other way um, for you, Santo. How does technical debt differ between startups and between more mature companies? Because we have been talking about those two, two dimensions yeah, yeah. also. Yeah, so, so when thinking about startups, uh, especially uh, uh, of startups where the founders have, have previous expertise, that they have had a long, long career or, or a track record, you typically find a very modern tech stack. They, they have hired a CTO and developers who are experts on, on, on modern ways of working. Uh, they use a cloud infrastructure in a modern way, so there are serverless solutions. You are using containers, etc., instead of, uh, of the good old uh, local uh, hosting facilities somewhere. Uh, and as the development history is typically not that long, there probably isn't a large amount of technical debt available. Then again, obviously, they are startups. Uh, I mean, uh, I have set up a few companies over the years myself, and, and typically the best tools are the ones that you know how to use, and not mm. those who are best on the paper. So, so not everybody is using using the let's say industry standard libraries and solutions. So, so obviously, there are also cases with startups where where the let's say the setup is perhaps not enticing a, a large appetite for that particular technology, but, but you still still need to manage with it though. Then more established companies and especially those who have a long history and are doing something which is inherently complex like an ERP solutions. So, so there, yeah, 
there typically is uh, some legacy in the code and infrastructure, especially since when the companies are small, they, they tend to do uh, client-specific uh, modifications, and then you end up in a situation where you have actually 37 versions of the same software running for 37 different clients, and this is unmanageable mm. on, on, a, on a longer run. And, and there are also sometimes issues with dependencies. So, so you have used like a, a version or, 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 or version of the language that existed eight years ago, and you are unable to update it because there are so many dependencies and you don't have the time to fix all of those over the years. And you might then end up in a situation where you actually have a fairly big uh, security risk post posture. There are a lot of attack vectors that get, could be used against your software because it's so old and you, you haven't been managing, managing the debt well. That being said, there are good cases of startups, there are good cases of established companies, and there are bad cases of both of these. But if you want some kind of an uh, overall view, I, I would say that typically the startup cases are a bit more easier, and especially if there are experienced founders there. What, I, what I've seen with the startups that, for example, we have worked together is that they normally tend to prioritize the features that make money. Yeah. They don't prioritize the features that are nice to have, and they normally forgot the, <laughs> forget the uh, documentation, for example, which is kind of part of the technical debt that you don't know how it's been built. Uh, but that for, for sure that it's it's very often they they use modern technologies and then. Uh, for for example, when we do the audit, uh, one of the things that we look at the, at the application and the solution is that how how easy it is for us to set up the, the environment and and do we get the application working on on our side? Mm. And then in a way, the less you have technical debt, the, the more you have modern stuff, the easier that is. So, so you don't you don't really have to figure out that how this is actually being. Um, Built, you just but press the button basically and and get it done. So you build it, we run it, and then see if you can make it work. And if not, then then there's something wonky going on. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Good advice. Sometimes you sometimes you need kind of some some like tips and tricks if it's like not standard, but if everything is really nice and well done, then kind of you get the source code out the out of the git and 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 run it. <laughs> There you have it. You can you could start developing it if if that's if everything is in in place. Yeah. But yeah, and if you look at the the legacy stuff, uh, it might be that well, it's something that I have never <laughs> written in as a as a language, and it might be really cryptical. So that you just have to know that there is an API somewhere, and you call it somehow, and then you get something. And and this is the the nightmare of the cases that you have to trust purely on the on the on the target developers to tell how it works but of course that's something that we then try to analyze also yeah we are rounding up but there are two short topics that i wanted to touch upon because we have been so so well the name says it's a technology due diligence audit but there were two topics that were coming up. One is the <clears throat> value of the team and processes. And then the other one is value of the trust. So maybe we spend a little while talking about T 
fulfillment processes first and then round up to the trust part of the of the technology due diligence sure um from an auditor point of view the team is the thing that does the trick so that the code is as good as the team so people are the valuables and that you really need to appreciate their their part in in the audit um and in in our technology due diligence we we evaluate the team we try to figure out if there are any personal risks uh, are there any individuals who are with high importance and if they kind of leave the team what happens uh, do they have enough documentation how difficult is to bring in someone new into the team who would take over that work and we try to analyze that is it is it even possible and then of course we on on the feeling side we are trying to also establish some kind of um, evaluation on the team spirit that how well they work together are they a bunch of individuals who do whatever they want and don't really talk to each other and then, then or are they a team that is really working together and kind of creating together value to the software and of course we we want to know how well everybody knows what's what's the way forward do they have a roadmap and uh, is that shared with everybody and also who owns that is it it's like a chaos or is there some kind of way forward and it's being managed uh, in, in a good way what about yeah, so you yeah, so, so, so continuing from, from that, if one uh, needs to make a, cho a choice between the, the product and the team, obviously would say that the team is more, more important, but, but there, there is a, a, some fluctuation with this, obviously, as, as if the product is fairly new, then you are purchasing something, especially for the future, and then the mm. team and its capabilities are, are the crucial, the paramount thing. If you are acquiring something that has been existing for 20 years, then there is a value in what has already been produced. There are client relationships, there might be enormous amount of code, uh, great algorithms, etc. Et so, so you can't uh, neglect either parts of these. But, but, but like, like said earlier, you, you are acquiring people to do the job that they are good at and, and hopefully passionate about. So, so you, you need to look into the capabilities of the team. Yeah, uh, and probably a big difference is whether you are consolidating the market. So you are Absolutely. you are buying a competitor. You are buying somebody who is coming up with basically overlapping offering and merging them together. Or if you are building a proposition where you are basically collecting together different functionality to stitch them to a proposition, but there is barely no overlap between those parts. So naturally, they they also play a big role there. What about the trust? That that was something that we discussed in the beginning, and I, I'd like to hear your your both views on on that one before we wrap up or before we close. Yeah, uh, from from the auditor point of view, view um, we need to be trusted by the target. Otherwise, we can't really get anything out of the software. So they need to trust us, and once once they kind of establish the trust towards us, uh, they are also learning things. They, they are given some pointers, they are given some valuable feedback so that this goes in, in both ways. So when they trust us, they get uh, uh, 
information and and pointers and um, also when when the uh, uh, customer trusts us then um, we provide valuable information to them that where 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 they are putting their money in so there needs to be a trust in 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 the, this holy triangle both ways so that uh, we are together at this phase and we need to trust each other to get the value out of this process yeah i i fully agree so so obviously from the client perspective you wouldn't want to hire a bad lawyer so why wouldn't you why would you want to hire a bad auditor or tech duty auditor so so you need to have the tr uh, trust on on the uh, persons or, or company you are working with uh, the important thing here is also that like you have said it's typically two three week process some, sometimes month but it's never a very long process and the auditor cannot look into everything so you need to have also trust on the auditor's processes that what they are doing will provide a good enough picture of the truth, uh, truth what what there is and what there isn't. So so so, so in in that sense, trust obviously plays plays a major major part in this. And and again, continuing from Juha's thoughts, if the uh, auditor and the target, if there isn't any rapport between them, they don't trust each other it will end up in blame games and sometimes it might be difficult to take. I mean, you have coded something for the past six years, it's your baby, you think it's great. Then an external party comes in and says that it's not so great, you have done this wrong and that should have been done better, etc. So it demands a lot of soft skills from the auditor as well to manage the process in, in, the, in the correct way and, and not and not go into the blame game part that this was done bad and then the target company says but hey you don't understand anything about how we work etc so then the audit starts to be pretty close to worthless if you go into that one yeah you had a great back. sorry you have go ahead yeah yeah going back to the thing that we also share our report to the target and this is i think part of the trust so that we don't want to kind of write anything down unless they also see it. So they know what being, what is being written down about their software and their processes. Yeah, and Santo, you had this example about not not hiring a untrustworthy lawyer, and uh, I could imagine that when, let's say that you, a company who is doing acquisitions, and when they find some company who have successfully perform tech DD audits, then you there is a value in sticking with that auditor because it basically it sort of reinforces the relationship time after time. Uh, absolutely. And like I said, it's all also about the processes and the reporting because the the reporting that has been created, it goes to multiple parties. It, it, it goes to the lawyers, it goes to the uh, financial auditors, tax auditors, your own team, perhaps your own board. So, so, so you need to understand that what's going to come out from the audit, how are you going to use that information in your own process, decision making and negotiation processes. So, so uh, obviously here working with somebody on on more than one project is helpful because that, then you can convey the ideas and requirements that you have for such a process and and you can start to de develop ways of efficient ways of working working together i mean obviously i guess any talented individual could do a code audit but it's not about the code audit itself it's about the soft skills it's about the processes etc and 
again, you wouldn't perhaps go to a lawyer who has never handled a single M&A case mm. prior to your, your particular project. So, so stick with the experts, I, I, I would say. Thank you. And thank you both for joining the podcast. It was a very enlightening conversation. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Thank you for listening. You can find links to the social media profiles of Santo and Juha in the show notes, alongside some related materials that I believe could be of interest to you. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating on your platform. It means the world to us. Also, check out our other episodes for interesting and exciting talks. Before I let you go, I want to offer a floor to Santo and Juha to introduce them properly. All I say now is take care of yourself and remember that the technical debt cannot be wiped away. Hi, I'm Santo Elsinen. I'm Chief Digital Officer at Alma Media, which is a Finnish uh, mid-sized or large-sized by Finnish standard media company. So, so uh, we have pretty much digitalized ourselves. Uh, almost 80% of our revenue nowadays comes from digital properties. So, so we have close to 100 different services uh, in, in Finland, Sweden, Baltics and, and then Eastern Central Europe. And uh, what I do here is uh, I handle technology-related matters. I'm part of, part of the management team and typically I'm very much involved with the M&A uh, work. We do that quite a lot, so, so it is a significant part of my, my job here. Uh, m- my background uh, is, is an entrepreneur, so I have founded five different software companies myself and uh, sold all of them away over the years. And then I decided to try to cooperate life, and that's, that's why, why I'm currently working here. My name is Juha Ramala, and um, um, as a title, I have a title of Agile Coach and Project Manager at Efficode. Um, I have about around 20 years of experience on the on the IT side uh, and um, kind of various sides of it so I've been in a huge uh, corporation for for 10 years and then some some startup uh, experience in my background also and then uh, on the later years um, for some reason I've been brought up with with problems with uh, processes and 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 um, change management and those those are other things that I've done also in the past and now that I've been working for every code um, um, mainly I've been working on the project management side but uh, during the last year I uh, participated more or less in in around 10 different due diligence audits uh, either kind of like helping the actual doers or being part of, of, of the of the audits um, and it's been pretty pretty interesting ride in a way that you can see what what have been built in the world and how they have done the job and also uh, going further um, we because we are further developing the, the due diligence audit offering of Efficode um, I'm going to be developing it uh, further and trying to kind of get it more standardized format so that you can rely that our standards and our processes on the due diligence audit process are something that you can trust and uh, you can you know what you're buying when you're buying a uh, due diligence audit. 